Hey, what's going on, beautiful black people? How you doing? I'm Dr. Boyce Watkins from Your Black World and the Black Business School and the Black Wealth Boot Camp. Um, I'm here. Um, today's I, I, I'm about to teach today because today's the last day of our Black Financial Leadership Program for Children, and um, our kids have learned uh, from me directly on Saturdays uh, how to start businesses, how to build wealth. Uh, how to develop their economic future. If you're interested in that program and you want to take a look at it at some point, it is at blackfinancialleadership.com. That's blackfinancialleadership.com. As you know, we are in the midst of Project 100,000. Project 100,000 is our effort to get 100,000 black children trained on the basics of financial literacy, wealth building, cooperative economics, and the ability to build a black Wall Street. If we get 100,000 children that are trained um, in these areas, these very basic areas like a rites of passage, then these will be the children who will build <clears throat> the uh, the 50, 100 billion dollar, uh, you know, black Wall Streets that will exist 100 years from today, or they will begin the framework for that. Uh, this is a long term vision. This is something that I know is going to work. Uh, and we've actually got 3,000 children. <clears throat> excuse me, that we have trained. Uh, this was something, an initiative we began after the All Black National Convention, which I can proudly say was uh, not, was really a true FUBU. It was truly for us, by us, and it was financed by us. We didn't ask for nobody's money. We didn't have to beg nobody. We did it ourselves. So in that regard, the All Black National Convention was absolutely historic. Uh, what's going on? I see Shanice in here again. Shanice, I, I think I think Shanice got a crush on me because Shanice be in there every day. I love you, girl. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Uh, Sandra, Charles, Austin. Austin says this country has always been a disgrace. Well, you know, uh, I guess it depends on how you define disgrace, but I would definitely say um, a disappointment uh, and, and probably a, a disgrace in the sense that, you know, you got this horrible racism thing kind of happening. In the backdrop of all this so-called American greatness, you know, there's all this, you know, we are America, hear us roar, look at how great we are. But at the same time, you hanging black people from trees and, you know, and all this other crazy stuff. So everything that you say you're all about, you're not about any of those things. The things you pride yourself on the most absolutely have nothing to do with it. They're not in any way a reflection of how you truly operate as a nation. That's pretty embarrassing. That's pretty horrible. I mean, that's pretty disgraceful. Um, but you know, when you talk about a disgrace to be more specific, um, I was thinking about, Hey, I see Monique Roberts in them. Monique is, uh, I, I love Monique. Monique is my uh, goddaughter. Actually. I don't know if she wants me to tell you all that, but, uh, but I love her. I was bragging about her the other day. She went to Columbia and I was bragging about how she, um, she, uh, went to went there for four years and had a, had a hard time. I mean, didn't, you know, money was tight. Money was real tight. And, um, and she still made it work and she did two sports and so she was always exhausted, always at practice, but still kept a high GPA and still worked hard. So I got to actually compare children to the Uber driver that I was riding with. And he was telling me about his 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 daughter being a tennis star. And I was like, well, you know, you know, my goddaughter was actually the number one high jumper in the United States. And she's damn cool, too. Damn smart and damn gorgeous and damn amazing and damn wonderful. And I'm damn proud of her. So just so you know, Monique, I, I was talking all about you yesterday. That's probably why you came in here, because your ears were probably burning. Uh, but anyway, enough, enough of my personal business. I'm not big about putting my um, putting my, my business out there like that, you know, because you never know how your relatives are going to react. Like I always talk about my grandma 
And my grandmother, my grandmother was the topic of the new film that we just put out, um, The Secrets of Black Financial Intelligence. And I did the film about my grandma, not just because I loved her, but I did it because my grandmother was amazing. She actually uh, raised uh, four kids by herself. She never made more than $22,000 a year or 25000 excuse me. But she always had perfect credit. She never had to borrow money from anybody. She uh, was never in debt. Um, she had, you know, plenty of financial assets. Her house was paid off, car paid off, all of that. Never had to borrow money from anybody. Now, this is in the middle of all kinds of financial chaos I'm seeing in my family. I'm seeing relatives. I don't know about y'all, but I mean, my family, we got struggling relatives everywhere. My grandma was never struggling. Grandma was always on point. She always had money. And I was like, how's this lady who doesn't make much money have so much money? So I actually interviewed my grandmother about this before she passed. And that's where the secrets of black financial intelligence came from, because I was able to take financial theory in terms of what I learned as a finance professor for 23 years and tie that in with all the lessons my grandmother brought up. Because in case you don't know it, and I mentioned this in an article in Essence magazine, uh, money is like 90 percent psychological. It's 90 percent psychological. So a lot of people think it's all about how much you get, how much, you know, and all this other stuff. No, it's, it's really psychological. If you think like somebody, if you think like a spender, you're always going to be broke. If you think like a saver, then you'll always have money. So uh, we did that film, uh, and you can actually check out the trailer for the film at blackfinancialintelligence.com. That's blackfinancialintelligence.com. And I did the film also after my grandma died because it, it made me really sad. I loved her so much. And so it was very therapeutic for me. It was actually a good way to keep her legacy alive. So every time I talk about the film, it's like it's like talking about my grandma who lives right down the street. You know, like I feel like she's there. Every time I talk about her, I feel like she's in the room. And that's why I have to keep from crying. Every time I bring I bought my grandma at the All Black National Convention. I was like, I was like, yeah, I'm going to tell I'm going to mention my grandma real quick. And I swear to God, I started crying on the inside. I was like, oh, man, damn it, boys. You already done got this out of your system. Why are you crying right now? But I couldn't help it. And you know what it was? My grandmother was buried in Atlanta, not maybe no more than maybe five miles from the place I was giving that speech. And I felt like I had to bring her up right there in Atlanta. And, um, you know, and thankfully people were, were understanding. They didn't really, um, they didn't make fun of me or nothing. And y'all, if y'all make fun of me for crying, I'm, I'm gonna kick your ass. All right. So anyway, <clears throat> I see Kitty and Daryl. Daryl says not for blacks. Um, I'm not sure. I, I don't know what that means exactly, but I think you mean maybe uh, America as a democracy wasn't for blacks. And that's true. Democracy didn't count black people. Prosperity didn't count black people. So, you know, it's, it's so funny being black in this country because you're forced you're forced to kind of celebrate and be happy about things that um, that you shouldn't be happy about. You know, you're forced to celebrate people who wanted to chop your ancestors limbs off. You know, and, and rape them. You know, like, like I'm not going to celebrate these people. Uh, we actually have um, a class in the black in the black history school um, where it's, it's called Heads of Hate, and actually we document in 45 videos every American president, all these American presidents, and what they did to black people. So you got one on George Washington. Number one, George Washington did this. Number two, he did that. So it talks about things that you don't learn in school, like for example, how Washington passed laws saying that if you escape from the plantation and you have a baby. That baby's going to be a slave for life. Also, people don't know that Washington literally died. He spent his last days chasing down one of his runaway slaves. So this man who supposedly was all about liberty and freedom, apparently he didn't think that applied to black people. Uh, and, and that, But to me, I see that as like, um, you know, I, I don't see it. I think it's, it's, it's an obvious contradiction, right? How can you believe in liberty and freedom for everyone else but have that problem when it comes to black people? 
It, it's a contradiction to those who are sort of observing this behavior and living under the assumption that black people are perceived as being as human as white people. Um, but it's not a contradiction to the person who is sort of treating black people differently. Why? Well, because they don't see black. They Well, historically, they've not seen black people as human. And so over time, they're seeing us as more and more human, but not quite human. They still see us as subhuman, not quite animals, not quite property, but definitely subhuman. And when you see something as subhuman, you believe that that thing feels less pain. You have less empathy for that thing, um, you know, et cetera. So for, you know, for black people, I think that it, you could have white people, say, 100 years ago, who really believed they were good people, who really were like, you know, I won't, you know, I, I would never hurt a puppy. I would never hurt another human being. I'll never break the law. But they could sit there and watch a black person hang from a tree and think nothing of it because to them, it's almost like um, being at a pig roast. You know, you have a you have a pig roast. And the pig is on the stick and got the apple in his mouth and the pig's got the stick going through his whole damn body. And he's like roasting on the over the fire. Nobody really feels sorry for the pig. Like nobody's saying, oh, my God, what are we doing to this poor creature, this living thing? Because they're like, well, he's not human. So who gives a shit about the pig? Right. So that's what black people were. We were the pig. That's kind of how people saw us. That's why you can have somebody who goes to church every Sunday, is good to everybody in the neighborhood and is a loving, caring human being and treats their, their family members, you know, with love and respect. But yet they can go chop a black man's balls off and think nothing of it. All right. OK, <clears throat> so, you know what? Let, let's see here. Travis says the bigger disgrace is all the educated, intelligent black people who refuse to wake up. Well, you know, Travis, I agree with you. It is a disgrace, but waking up is hard to do. Break, you know, that's not breaking up is hard to do. Well, waking up is hard to do, um, you know, because I think that. Uh, I mean, brainwashing is deep and then it's very scary to kind of try to wake up. You know, it's scary because it's like that, like that movie, The Matrix. There are there are some people that wanted to live in The Matrix. There are some people who enjoyed the illusion. They're like, no, just don't don't give me reality. I don't I don't want to handle all that. You know, reality to me, reality is not for everybody. Some people are more comfortable in a fantasy, you know, um, and so some people you know, not only do they not, they not want to wake up, but I don't even know if I want to wake them up because I don't know if they can really handle it. It's like, um, it's like, it's like leaving the city and moving to the woods. Some people can survive in the woods because they're kind of ready that, you know, freedom means that much to them that they'll go live out in the woods and, and find a way to make it work. But some people are like, you know what, I'd rather, I'd rather be constrained and be in a comfortable reality. I'd rather be in a comfortable prison than to be uncomfortably free. You know, I, you know, I'd rather be sort of, in this situation that it might constrain me, it might stress me out, I might not understand it, you know, whatever, but I, I at least I know the devil that I'm dealing with. Whereas if I go out and I'm free and I'm doing my own thing, there are going to be a whole host of other problems I run into that I'm not prepared to deal with. So freedom's not really so much for everybody. I would say freedom's for grown folks. And what do I mean by that? Well, think about it when you were 10 or 11, right? Have you ever had that day where you're pissed off at your mama because she's making you clean your room? And you're like, man, I wish I didn't live here. I wish I could just be free and get out of this house and, and go, you know, live, live on my own. The truth of the matter is that you're not ready for freedom. You're really not. You think you are because you, you feel like you're grown because you're 11. But I mean, are you really ready to deal with, you know, paying rent? You know, you're not because you can't even get a job. Are you really ready to solve grown up problems? No, you're not. You're not ready. Right. So some people just ain't really ready. You know, so to me, some people just sort of need um, other people to go out here and take the plunge. You know, some people are soldiers. Some people, the soldiers are the first ones. It's like going to Mars. Like 
Like, I know that humanity needs to get to Mars. I know that humanity needs to live on other planets because we're destroying our own planet. So we need to find some other places to live. But I don't want to go. I don't want to be the first one to go. I ain't ready for that life. <laughs> I'm not trying to. I'm, I want to be right here on my safe, comfortable, polluted Earth. And I want to watch everybody else go to Mars. Right. So some black folks. You know, our version of going to Mars really is becoming more enlightened, becoming more conscious. It's uh, it's um, confronting white supremacy. So some of us are ready to go to Mars. Some of us are just sick of it. Some of us are like, I'm, I, I, you know what? By any means necessary, just get me the hell out of here. Let me find a better reality. Let me let me find some other possibilities. But there's some people who are like, we'll just sit back and we'll just watch. And if it works out, then we're gonna come too, right? So when people go to Mars, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch intently because I'm fascinated by it. So like when the first people go to Mars, uh, I think I think Elon Musk claims that he he can get people to Mars and he's gonna charge two hundred thousand dollars a ticket. I don't believe it. I think Elon Elon's brilliant. Love Elon Musk. Uh, if you don't know him, look him up. But uh, but I think that he was talking about Mars a lot because he was trying to distract people from the fact that one of his rockets just blew up. So Elon, blow, he's blowing up too many rockets to make me think he's really going to get to Mars like in the next decade. But it's a nice fantasy. Right. So and I like that he's a visionary. He gets us excited. Right. So because NASA shows hell don't do it. So when Elon sends people to Mars, I'm going to watch really closely. I'm going to be glued to my TV set to see what happens. And then maybe after they have like the 40th or 50th trip. Then I'll start thinking about possibly going because by that time, the price will be lower. It'll be a whole lot safer. They will have had two or three major disasters so they, they could, you know, study and figure out what went wrong and it would be a safer. And then when I get there, it won't be so bad. I won't have to figure out how to rough it because there will already be an infrastructure there. So there's some black people in our community who are not who are not what they call first adopters. That's what they call it. That's the marketing terminology. First adopters are people who grab a new idea and lunge forward. So like you put out a new computer, they, they're the first ones to buy it. They'll overpay because they want to be on the cutting edge of everything. Some people are not first adopters or early adopters. Some people are late adopters. Some people sit back and watch what happens. And then once you develop the infrastructure, then they join in. Or, or you might even want to call them bandwagon Negroes if you want to be pessimistic, but it's early in the morning, so I'm not going to be pessimistic this early in the morning but but seriously so i think that once this is why we have project 100,000 because we believe that if we have 100,000 black children trained on the basics of cooperative economics wealth building and entrepreneurship that first 50 to 100,000 will create jobs for the next 50 million right so th those other 10 20 30 40 50 million people are going to be able to sort of jump into an infrastructure that's already pre-built some people can't Imagine a life where there just isn't structure there already. They'd rather walk into structure than to be one of the people who sort of has to go create that structure. I personally am okay with going to create that structure because I can't sit around racist people my whole life. I can't tolerate that. I'd rather just jump off a bridge and be dead and get my head chopped off. So um, I might be considered an early adopter, and it's okay. Because the other thing about being an early adopter is that you also have to have the hunger to, to go after whatever you want, but you also have to have a certain skill set. You know, so because I know because I took that time to learn financial literacy and entrepreneurship. I can go into a space where there is nothing and create something. I know how to create an entire economy. I, I've thought about these things, right? And th this information is available to everybody. I mean, it's out there. It's not like it's hard to get. I mean, you just go read books like Powernomics. You know, I, and I keep talking about Dr. Claude Anderson's book because I love the man so much. He's like a god. He's like a godfather, grandfather to me. And I, and I just love him on a personal level. And I just think that if you read books like this, um, if that becomes required reading for every child, then guess what? We're going to have a whole nation of economic geniuses. 
We're going to have a whole community filled with brilliant entrepreneurs. We're going to have a whole community filled with people who know how to make it rain at any point in time. Instead of black stereotypes being linked to stupid shit like how high we can jump, how fast we can run, how how well we can dribble basketballs, how big our penises are, you know, whatever all these other things that people think about us. Maybe the penis part. Who knows? Maybe that's something we can be proud of. I'm just I'm being stupid. Uh, but the um, instead of those silly um, sorts of stereotypes, we can get some good stereotypes, stereotypes you can actually work with. Like black people are so damn good. When you give them a little money, they keep that money in their community. They will build a business. You give them a thousand dollars. They're going to use nine hundred dollars of that money and they're going to turn it into nine thousand within two weeks. Right. That to me is a stereotype that we can build. You can build your own stereotypes. But you have to be deliberate about it, which means that a couple of things have to happen. Number one, you got to change your culture. You got to confront the culture. You got it. You can't be afraid to confront the ignorance. Doesn't mean you got to be nasty, but it does mean you have to kind of say, no, that's not what I do. That's not who I am. That's not what represents me. Well, you know, ignorance. I don't I don't sign. I don't co-sign on ignorance. Uh, I, I co-sign on intelligence. Right. But you so you got to change the culture. And then once you change the culture, that will naturally change the thinking and it will naturally change the action. Right. So you change the culture, the thinking and the action. And then also you got to control the media. <clears throat> you got to be able to tell your own story. So that means two things. Number one, you got to educate your own kids. So your kids. So so your kids aren't being filled with with stupid stuff. Right. Uh, black people have to have our own history books. We got historians out here at the black dot com. The black Write that down. The black dot com which we found it, we have black historians over there who are smarter than the people that you learn from in college. Aaron Johnson is a bad motherfucker when it comes to teaching black history. He knows his shit really, really well. He has, he did a, an amazing, amazing uh, course that is available there on the history of police brutality, the history of policing, going back to slave patrols and everything else, and how that links directly to what you see right now. You know, so so long story short, black people can we can write our own history books. We can teach our own children. We we created yourblackeducation.com where we got dozens and dozens of black educators that want to educate black kids. But the thing is, our challenge is that we're trying to help black people understand what white people have known a long time, which is that. You should be willing to pay for your child's education. You can't think of your education as a free commodity because when you get the free stuff, you're gonna get the crappy stuff. What you get when you pay when you think everything's free, you're gonna usually get what you pay for, especially if it's coming from the government. So for black people, if you ain't willing, I mean literally, it's so funny. We we will literally have stuff that's like twenty dollars a month. I mean, not even you can't even go to Applebee's with your kids for twenty dollars, right? But this is literally something that will change your child's life forever. And people literally be like, twenty dollars a month, that's too much. I can't afford that. But wait, what if, what about people who can't afford it? And I'm like, but I don't I just don't get it. Like you spent eighty dollars going to see the Kevin Hart movie with your family, and then you spent you know another two hundred dollars on the Jordans and and I mean seriously, it, it, it's it's crazy to me. So we tend to pr buy what we want and we beg for what we need. Right. And when you beg for what you need, then that, guess what you are? You're a beggar. You're a person that isn't willing to develop or build the infrastructure for your own future. So what happens is you get whatever future somebody decides to give you. You get the whatever charity people want to throw at you. And, it, and then you're upset because it doesn't give you what you want. So let's just, I think, practice. We should practice saying this every day. 
The education system is not helping black children. This education system is not good for black children. Practice believing that and saying to yourself, okay, we got to find other options for our kids. So the other thing, so we we're talking about changing the image that other people see of you, et cetera, by maybe writing your own history books, educating your own children. At the very least, change the way you, we all see each other and the way our children see themselves growing up. Last piece, very important piece, in my opinion, uh, media. You know, we need to make black movies and we need to make black TV shows. But I'm not talking about going to ABC or CBS and saying, Massa, can you please let us make a black show? Can can you make like like people like Marvel makes Luke Cage? And I was watching Luke Cage, I, the, the new show on Netflix. I heard it's good. It's boring me so far. The first episode just really is like, eh, OK, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm really getting bored. I'm trying my best to get into it. I watched the first I watched about 1.2 episodes of Luke Cage, and I'm just kind of like, man, like I thought this was going to be good. Because here's the thing. It has black people in it, and I like black people, and, it, and it's a Marvel show. I like Marvel. So I'm like, I like Marvel, and I like black people. So this is Marvel and black people. So this should be amazing. It ain't. It's not. It doesn't even, it doesn't even, it comes, it's almost like they're trying, they, like they're taking themselves too seriously. And they don't understand, like, with a Marvel, with a good Marvel comic movie, all you got to do is make some people fly and make some shit blow up. And you got to hit on your hands. You know, just have some people flying through the air and fighting and stuff blowing up. And you're good. Nothing's blowing up. Ain't nobody really fighting. You got black people. We fight a lot. Why ain't there more fighting? So I'm just expecting superhero stuff. But then again, maybe I sound cynical. But anyway, here's the point. I like I like the show. I'm glad Luke Cage is doing the show. Now, here's what's funny, though. People have been talking about the fact that his wife is white. And I think that's so sad and kind of odd when you have um, so many um, of these. You'll have this like major black sex symbol come out and all the sisters will be like fawning over this dude. And then they'll show his wife and she'll be like not just a white woman, but like a mediocre looking white woman. Like to me, if you marry a white person, at least make sure they're like so gorgeous that people are like, well, you know, they, she might be white, but man, you know, maybe she's worth an exception. Like, don't bring home a mediocre white person. Seriously, I'm, I'm kidding. Not that marrying a white person makes you a bad person. It doesn't. Or or less black. Or anything. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that it's just funny to me, right? And I, I'm always curious about how black women feel about that. But anyway, so going back to Luke Cage, let's talk about that. All right. So to me, Luke Cage, um, it's cool. Like, it's nice. It's nice to see you know, a black show coming out of Marvel. I'm happy for I'm happy for Marvel. I'm happy for the people that are in the show. But it's got it's like we, we, we still don't quite understand what it means to have a black show. A black show is not a show with black people that was made by white people. That's not a black show. That's not a black product. That is a product that was made by other people that's marketed to you so they can get money from your audience. That's the that's like go, me going to Chinatown and serving Chinese food to Chinese people, right? That's that's kind of that's kind of like like so my restaurant. The question is, if I'm a black man and, and the, the, my shareholders are mostly black and I own a Chinese restaurant and I'm serving Chinese food to Chinese people. The question is, is that truly a Chinese restaurant? That that's I mean, that's almost like philosophical. Like maybe if you smoke weed, you might want to smoke a joint and just kind of reflect on that. Even though I don't smoke, I don't mess with nothing. I don't I don't mess with anything that's mind altering, alcohol, drugs, none of that. Um, and that's why I tell black men, especially like don't like do if you can like stay away from that stuff because you know there's too many people in prison right now for things they did while they they were under the influence. And you don't want to like wake up one day and find out you did something horrible and that you have to spend your life in prison over that you don't even remember doing. Like that's a horrible feeling. So anyway, anyway, but going back to that, so 
Um, so, so like seriously, I mean, is that is that a Chinese restaurant, right? Um, I mean, the food is Chinese, the customers are Chinese, maybe even the the employees are Chinese, right? But if the owners and the final decision makers are not Chinese, if they're black, how would a Chinese person feel about that? How would they feel? You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know enough about the Asian community to know how they feel about that, it, especially if all the information was out there for everybody to see. A lot of times when they have something that appears to be black that's really not black, they will um, they'll hide the fact that they're that behind the scenes, the beneficiaries of the you know of this product are not black people. Right. They don't necessarily advertise that. Um, I know the, I don't think the Jewish community would feel very good about that, especially if you were creating something that would that was shaping their culture. Especially if you were creating something that that defined Jewishness. My God, can you imagine how the Jewish community would feel if they found out that my black ass was the sole determinant or one of the key determinants of what it meant to be Jewish in this country? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I mean, seriously. And that I could literally convince the Jewish children that. Um, because I let's say I, I educate their kids and I'm making all their movies and I convince Jewish children. Well, you know, Hitler wasn't a bad guy. In fact, Hitler was one of the great leaders of all time. And every day these Jewish kids are going to school, pledging allegiance to Hitler and, and, and studying Hitler and saying one day I want to grow up and be as great as Adolf Hitler. That's what the fuck they're doing to your kids when they got you out here worshiping George Washington. That's what they're doing to you. They literally have you worshiping your version of Adolf Hitler. I mean, really, think about it. George Washington didn't want your ancestors to be free human beings. George Washington didn't care if your ancestors got killed. If they, if they spoke up against him, tried to leave the plantation, broke any of the rules he set, he had no problem seeing them exterminated. That ain't much different from Hitler. Slavery was probably worse than the Nazi Holocaust because at least the Nazi Holocaust was just six years. Slavery was over 250 years. So compare two and a half centuries to six, six years. So, so again, this is not belittling the Holocaust or belittling the pain that people went through. It's, it's a tragedy. I mean, absolutely. But I think that in order for you to understand the sheer insanity of blackness in this country, to understand the sheer lunacy of everything that we're fed, Take the time to compare, like, like say flip the races around. This is something, this is something, maybe this is the statistician in me. This is what we used to do when we used to do uh, like mathematical models and statistical, you know, analysis is we would say, what if you move this variable and put it over here and replaced it with that variable over there? What would it look like? And it gives you so many insights that help you understand that racism has made you lose your motherfucking mind. Racism has caused you to literally lose your mind. I'm sorry for cussing so much today, but I just got to let it out. Racism has caused you to become insane because you have literally been trained to believe that what is up is down and what is down is up. That, that's what's happened to you. All right. Okay. So <laughs> let me, let me, let me stop. Okay. Um, Oh, don't forget, uh, we're, we're planning the all-black national convention already. Uh, if you want to see the footage from the last convention, which you will love, by the way, you can go to allblacknationalconvention.com. That's allblacknationalconvention.com. Uh, I'm very proud of the convention. It, it was historic because it was paid for by us, more specifically paid for by me. 
and we pulled it off and it was national. We had people come from all over the world. The video footage, uh, the clips that we've released have gotten millions and millions of views. People are excited because to me it's real. It's, 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 it's exciting to know that we're doing something and we don't have to ask for anybody's help. I, it's, it's not like, you know, you know, black people brought to you by Coca-Cola. It's none of that. It's not black, you know, black leadership brought to you by McDonald's. Like, like they then and, and watch, pay very close attention when you go to like the Congressional Black Caucus events or or other sorts of forums, pay attention. Like like listen to who's paying the bills. You know, like, oh, we want to thank we want to thank Wells Fargo for pull, helping us hold this forum on how black people can lead themselves into the 21st century. Or, or we want to say thank you to Walmart uh, for providing the, the, the money that we need. We are got none of that. We pulled this off with black people's money. And, and I, did, I can't say I did it all by myself because it's really the support people have shown to things like the black business school and stuff like that. That we use and, and literally and this money was not used so I can buy me a Bentley and a mansion. This money was flipped right back in to all the initiatives that you see. And believe me, the thing about it, the crazy part is that this is just the beginning. I, I literally have trillion dollar ideas in my head. I've literally drawn out a trillion dollar infrastructure. The problem is it's not going to be finished while I'm alive. What's going to happen is that all this, all the soldiers I'm talking to, all the people that are internalizing the message, all the people that really get this. They're going to run with it. When, when I get old and I'm gray and I'm dead, they're going to run with it and they're going to be teaching their kids and then their kids are going to run with it. And in about 100 years, maybe 150 years, you're going to see a trillion dollar African-American infrastructure in our community that's going to reflect a lot of the values that we talk about. But in order for us to see this, in order for us to really see it, we got to see it. Meaning that in order for us to see it in real life one day, but after you're dead, not now, uh, we have to be able to see it in our imagination. We have to understand what it's even going to look like. Because the problem is, it's one thing when you're behind in a race. It's another thing when you don't even know which direction you're supposed to run in. You see, it, it's, it's, it's one thing if you're trying to make progress. And it's another thing when you don't even know what progress is. We not, not only do we not have the progress that we deserve, the progress that we need, we don't even know which way is north, south, east, or west. You got a whole lot of black people that really think they're making progress when really these sons of bitches are running backwards. Really. I mean, they really they define, for example, a lot of black people still define progress for black people to be proximity to whiteness. You know, like they get affiliated with with powerful white institutions or I get a chance to go to some university or I get a chance to work for some kind of company or whatever. And they really feel like, look at me, you know, back 50 years ago, my grandmother could never attend this school. And here I am. I'm the, the dean of the blah, blah, blah. Right. And so so what's interesting is that, you know, that this school that you might be associated with or this institution you're associated with, it, it, it's, it makes you feel good. It's very prestigious. But there are institutions in the black community that either exist or could exist that are just as good, but you don't think they're as good because you have been led to believe that getting away from black people is, is a sign of progress. Where really it's diluting your community. It's ruining you. It's forcing, it's pushing you towards sort of an assimilationist mentality. Now, I'm not saying assimilation is always a bad thing in the sense that, you know, we have a blended society. You know, over time, you're going to have kind of a melting pot. You know, the white kids will get a little blacker, the black kids will get a little whiter and all this other. And that's going to naturally happen. But what happens, unfortunately, is that so much of who we are gets muted. Because when you enter into a partnership and it's not an equitable partnership, then what happens is the very best of you kind of gets suppressed. 
and, and it gets replaced with whatever the, the oppressive party or whatever the empowered party sort of puts onto you, whatever they push onto you. So how many of you go to work every day? Maybe you work at a, at a company where nobody looks like you and you're sort of fe- you sort of feel like you have to be a different person in order to fit into the culture. Right. So what's happening there? Right. When they say we want diversity, which is a bullshit word. Most companies, everybody says that every company, every university, every institution has a diversity statement. But most of them don't follow it because no, there's no there's no um, what's the word? No recourse, no um, consequence for not following it. There's no enforcement of it. Right. So every university, when I was at Syracuse, they had a beautiful diversity statement. It meant nothing. They they, they didn't you know, they didn't hire black professors because some some of the professors would just say, well, we just don't want a black person here. They wouldn't say that deliberately. But every time a black person applies. No matter how qualified they were, there were some departments where every black person just got rejected. But here's the thing about diversity that's really interesting. I just freaking hate that word. And that's probably one of the things I loved about Claude Anderson is Claude Anderson helped me understand why I hate that word, why that word bothered me. I hate that. I hate saying diversity and minority. Minority makes you feel tiny. I don't want to be tiny. I'm not tiny. I'm big. I'm strong. I'm a man. Damn it. You, you know, I'm not tiny. I'm not the little tiny son of a bitch who's begging you to get an opportunity. I'm a real man. You, you're going to shape to my agenda. You know, no, you're, you're, I'm not, you're not the sun. And with me being the earth revolving around you, no, I'm going to be the sun and you're going to have to revolve around me. And, and I think every black man, every black woman, you, you should have that same power, bring that same energy, be the sun. Don't be a moon. Don't be a planet. Don't be an asteroid. Don't be a comet. Don't be something that revolves around somebody else's power. You create your own power. And that comes from your spiritual energy. So terms like diversity and minority. I hate that shit. Can't stand it. So here's the thing about uh, about that. Where was I going with that? Oh, diversity. Here we go. Understand this. There's a difference between a company that hires you because you're black versus a company that hires you in spite of the fact that you're black. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Right. True diversity means that you say, you know what? We want to shift the culture. We want to learn from different points of view. We want to bring in different kinds of people and put them at the table as equitable partners such that we can all make decisions together and the decisions are better because we're getting all kinds of perspectives on how to make that choice. That's wonderful. God bless you. I'm happy for that. Problem is that that belief that that naive expectation is so counter to human nature that it's ridiculous. Human beings do not share power. You do not you do, you do not naturally share power. You, know, you you might give away a little power that you really don't feel like you need, but you don't give away the bulk of your power. Most humans can't really do that, right? So what happens is instead of them hiring you because you're black, they 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 over they're willing to just overlook the fact that you're black. So what happens is that you being hired kind of comes with this sort of condition, right? The condition and the implicit agreement is look. We will bring you in. We will treat you well. We'll almost make you one of us. As long as you don't, as long as you leave all that black shit behind. Like, so you don't be walking down the hallway talking about Black Lives Matter. Don't be telling me that you agree with Colin Kaepernick and him, his protest of the American flag because we're going to fire your black ass. So we're going to, or, or they won't, it won't be sort of a blatant firing. It'll be like suddenly you're, it, it'll be what, like what happened to me when I was, at, when I was a student at Ohio State. When I suddenly revealed, when I started being black in public, <laughs> when I started being black in public, that my evaluations went from Boyce is one of the best students we've ever seen to Boyce is okay, 
but he needs to learn how to control his mouth and not speak so much and blah, 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 blah. Like literally, literally. So so that's kind of what happens to so many of us. So the, the thing about it is that because the country really doesn't have the heart to really embrace diversity and what it means, really to really make that sacrifice. And it's a kind of sacrifice where it's like me losing weight at the gym. Like I can tell you that I'm really committed to losing weight at the gym, but I still stay fat sometimes. And sometimes I need to be forced into doing what I already told you that I want to do. So sometimes these companies that claim that they will voluntarily pursue meaningful diversity, they just don't have the willpower and the discipline because it's so contrary to human nature to do it. So they need to be forced. Well, the question is, who's forcing them? The answer is nobody. Nobody. It ain't you. It ain't you because you're too busy trying to fit in. So you ain't going to say nothing. You're going to be quiet as a church mouse just hoping that they don't notice you and get rid of you, right? And is it the government? No, it ain't going to be the government. You had a black president who literally did not say the word black for years while he was in office, right? Um, I mean, who's going to who's gonna do it? Nobody. So ultimately, my argument is, and I said this yesterday. I said this two, at 2 o'clock in the morning last night, so I'll say it again so you know it. I was breaking it down. I said, okay, so you got some black people who um, – you got the black people who want to what is what is the word people who want to fit into the system. These are like what I call the assimilationists. You've got the oppressed black people who complain about the system. Right. As soon as Massa walks out, they start saying, well, Dr. Boys, let me tell you what these white folks are doing. Right. And, and I feel bad for those people because they feel like complaining is actually going to fix the problem. Complaining doesn't do anything. Um, and then you've got those people who are who might be seen as progressive, who will fight the system, either internally or externally. Either they'll go in and get a position and really fight from the inside. God bless them. I, I, I think that those people are valuable and the, or the people who will leave the system and fight the system from the outside. But what you got to understand is all four of those uh, categories have the, the, the specific limitation that they're all obsessed with the system. They're all sort of focused on the system. You know, either the system's oppressing me, either I'm trying to fit in, so I'm cooning, or I'm fighting it constantly and it's stressing me out. I'm mad about the system. I'm, re I'm responding to what the system did or whatever. Or I'm sitting on the outside or the inside fighting it, right? But what people don't understand is you got that fifth and, and what, what is a very valuable option, which is to leave the system and form an alternative system. You see, if you look throughout history and you look at most oppressed groups of people who were able to truly find their way to freedom, in many cases, they were best able to do that by leaving their current system and creating something new. Right. That means abandoning everything you loved about the old shit, letting go of all of that. Let go. Just know that that ain't yours no more and that you can go over here and build something of your own. The Mormons did that when they were being oppressed because white people hated white people hate other white people sometimes as much as they hate you. They didn't unify on this whole like we all hate black people kind of thing until they got to America and decided the rich people convinced poor white people that that, you know, you know what? We're, we're going to treat you like crap, but at least you're not a nigger. That's where that came from. But if you go to Europe. Man, I swear, it's the most amazing thing. Europeans have been slaughtering each other for the longest time. Poor versus, you know, rich white people. It, it was ridiculous. It's insane. Aaron Johnson actually talks about that a lot. The historian I told you about it at theblackhistoryschool.com. He, he, he broke that down actually in a lecture. And I was like, wow, that's really profound. So – Anyway, uh, the Mormons, when the Mormons were being oppressed, they went out to Salt Lake City. It wasn't Salt Lake City at the time. They were looking for the Great Salt Lake and said, we're going to settle near the Great Salt Lake. Now they've got Utah and Salt Lake City, one of the most beautiful cities in the world, right? Um, the people that came to America, you know, the pilgrims and all that other shit, right? They were being oppressed in England. They came here and they created their own nation, their own situation, right? So I think that for black people, I think that we have to really kind of accept the idea that creating our own systems – 
might be one of the most important solutions that we can implement in this generation. We can't complete the process now, just like in 1776 or 1650 or whatever. They didn't do they didn't sort of create America and all its glory in 10 years or 15 years. It took 200 years. But somebody had to plant the seed. Somebody had to just say, I'm tired of this shit. I'm getting the hell up out of here. Let's just go ahead and start this thing off. And you know what? When they first got started, they were starving to death. They were struggling. It wasn't working out. And, 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 he, and the thing is, even the strongest, most visionary people, they, they were the only ones who were really, really willing to kind of go make that happen. A lot of the bandwagon people didn't come along till later because the, the, the visionaries had to deal with the, the difficult part, which is how do we find food? How do we get clothes on our back? How do we build a house? How do we stay alive, right? So once that's established, then you had other people saying, ooh, we, we hear they got something real good going on in America. I want to go be a part of that, right? Now, again, I'm, I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying everything, but please just bear with me on this. So I think that for you, if you are that person who says, you know what, I just want to do something different. I want to get away from all this. I encourage you to trust that instinct and stop second guessing yourself. Stop being scared. Stop letting people make you think that you're crazy because – most of the time, when you really see a grand vision that doesn't exist at all, you technically are crazy. You technically are seeing an illusion because that just exists in your head. So when I see something that's in my head and I see it as if it's real, then then I, I'm really a delusional person at that point. So what I do is I say, okay, right now I'm a little bit crazy. I probably sound crazy talking about something that, that doesn't exist. So now I just need to make it real so that everybody else can kind of get it. So other people can kind of see it. And so um, anyway... With that being said, there was something else I was going to add to that. I don't remember what it was, but um, but but the, the the general point is that I think that we we have to just understand. Oh, I know what it is. I know what it is. Here's a good analogy to help you understand this. Actually, um, um, you know, I'm writing this down because, by the way, while I write this down, please uh, share this to your social media. And also, if you want a free e-copy of my book, if you want to understand the vision better, uh, you can get a free e-copy of my book. Uh, it takes a village to raise the bar. If you go to drboycewatkins.net, that's drboycewatkins.net. Um, and uh, and I want you to read. That. I want you to read it more than I want you to buy it, the book. So you don't worry about buying it. Just get the free e-copy and check it out. And if you read it with your family, I'd appreciate it. Read it. Read it two or three times. It's a short book, and it kind of breaks down some of the vision in simple terms to kind of help you understand what I'm saying here. Uh, but anyway. Uh -huh. The best way to understand this is like this. I, I think relationships. I think a lot about the relationship stuff lately because I'm actually working on sort of a curriculum in a class on something I call love and economic, black love and economics, and literally trying to explain as many economic concepts as possible using um, uh, analogies that relate to love. Because everybody understands love. Everybody knows what it's like to be in love. You didn't have to go to college to learn how to love. You didn't have to read a book to learn how to be attracted to somebody or to want to be with them or make a baby or get married or whatever, right? And so I, I think it's very interesting that so many of these ideas in economics that we're trying to overcome as a community in terms of coming together, trusting each other, really caring about each other and having each other's back – it all links back to love. Love is sort of the core of all that. And one of the analogies I can utilize to help you understand what I'm saying about leaving systems and starting your own is really just like a relationship, right? Have you ever seen somebody who's in a relationship where they ain't, they ain't being treated right, right? So think about it. Let's look at those four, four, cat, four initial categories, right? So you got those people who are going through hell with their partner and they're bitching about it all the time, complaining, complaining, complaining. But their partner doesn't change their behavior because you're not presenting what they call a credible threat. That's what they call it in game theory, a credible threat. Credible threat means that they know that you ain't going nowhere. They know that they've convinced you that, look, if I don't want you, nobody will, right? And so you sit next to this person who's treating you poorly, just like we sit next to white folks. We sit next to the people who are treating us poorly because we really need their approval. 
right? We've been con conditioned to feel that approval from whites is validation for us as black people, that it makes us more worthy as human beings. So you might, in a relationship, have been conditioned to believe that that this person's approval, this asshole who's next to you, that their approval is, you know, that, that it's worth something, that they're the best you can get. You're afraid of the unknown, whatever. So you just deal with the oppression, right? Or you go to that second category. The second category was, um, uh, what was it? Those, those who, um, uh, who assimilationists, that's it. So, so maybe those who just kind of bow to it, who just say, well, he abuses me, but you know, that's my husband. That's what men do. Right. Or she's, you know, she's taking all my money or she's, she's, uh, psychologically abusing me. There are a lot of men who are victims of psychological abuse. People don't talk about it, but, but I've seen that happen a lot where you have a real nice guy who's really real bitchy woman and who just really sort of tears him down every chance she gets. See, people don't understand. They, they, they act like abuse only goes in one direction, but that, that from what I've seen, it doesn't go in one direction. It goes in both directions. And so you've got those who um, who are maybe, you know, who are assimilating to it. Right. And then you've got those maybe who either fight the system inside or outside. Right. So either in the relationship they're fighting or they're out of the relationship and they're still obsessed with what the other person is doing. Right. Have you ever seen that when somebody breaks up and all they're thinking about is what the other person is doing? All, who they're dating, they're 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 like, well, I'm gonna show them, and or I'm when I when I come to the party, I'm gonna look good so that they'll want me back, and it never works. You know, like you think, well, they well, one day they're gonna be sorry that they lost all of this. Well, no, they're not. They probably don't care. They ain't really thinking about you, right? But because you're you because what what happens with love, I believe, is that you get convinced that the world is smaller than it is. You become so obsessed with one situation and one person that literally you don't realize that there are more people in the world that you haven't met than there are that you have met. There are more things that you haven't done than there are that you have done. There are more places you haven't been than there are that you have been. There are, there are so many things to, that you could be doing right now other than thinking about this one person out of a billion, right? Or out of six billion, right? But you, but you're so obsessed there because you, you've been mentally sort of drilled into the, you know, into sort of only focusing and obsessing over one person in one situation, right? So what's the smart move? When do you really win the victory? Well, you win the victory when you move your ass on. Seriously, you really win the victory when you say, you know what? I'm letting go of all of that. Like, yeah, sure. You know what? He might have been he might have had a whole lot of money or maybe the sex was good or whatever. But I'm letting all that go. That's not my man. I don't want that man or or that woman. Yeah, she looked really good. And and man, I, I hate letting that go. But you know what? That's not mine. I'm not going to obsess over what I'm losing. Instead, I'm going to focus on what I can gain. Right. Instead of looking behind me, I'm looking in front of me. Instead of thinking about what I've lost, I'm thinking about what I'm going to receive now that I've opened myself up to all the that the world has to offer. Right. So you've left the system entirely. And, and think about this, really. I mean, I want you to really think about this. The day that you really know that you're over somebody is when not when you remember that, you know, how they say that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference, right? So you're not over them when you're still mad at them. You're still trying to get revenge on them. You're still talking about them or you're still cussing them out. That that really shows that you're still emotionally connected to that situation, to that person, to that system. You know, when you're over the person, when you see them on the street, 
And you're like, how are you doing? I wish you well. I hope that you're doing good. I hope that you're happy. Or somebody says, well, well, what about Paquan? What, whatever happened with him? You're like, you know, I don't know what happened with Paquan, but, but I hope he's doing good. You know, or, or Sheila, you know, like, oh, well, Sheila, you know what? I, yeah, I saw her. Yeah, she was looking nice. Man, that was a pretty girl. But yeah, I heard she's got, oh, that happened to her. Oh, she's sick. Oh, man, I hope she's better. Like, you just don't, you, you kind of care because you're being nice, but you just don't care that much because you've moved on to something better. Right. You've created a better life for yourself. Right. So to me, that's what I when I talk to my, my girls about relationship stuff, I'm like, you know what? Sometimes something ain't really for you. Sometimes somebody's not, you know, meant to be yours. And the sooner that you just sort of accept that and let that go and move to a better situation, the happier you'll be. You know, and, and, and in fact, the more determined you are to move forward, the easier it is for you to get to the point where you say, you know what, I'm, I'm actually happy that they let me go because my life is so much better now because now I've taken the mistakes from the previous situation I was in and I've applied that knowledge to my new situation. So now I'm a better boyfriend. I'm a happier human being. I'm better able to pick. My life is much better than it would have been if I sat back haggling with the same dumb situation that I felt stuck in so many years ago. I believe that that accurately defines our relationship with white America, with white supremacist systems and institutions. We feel that that's all we got. We feel like if they don't want us, nobody will, that we ain't got nowhere to go. And we are just sort of mentally trapped. We're obsessed. We worry about what people think about us. We get mad. We jump off the deep end every time a white person says one thing that offends us. We're always worried about whether or not they're going to hire us. We're always trying to show them up or whatever. And it's like, my day of freedom, the day I became more free or able to escape the, the, the confines, the psychological confines of racism was when you would ask me about white people and I had to actually work to become offended. I really don't care. I don't care what they think about me. I don't care if they if they wouldn't hire me. I don't I don't care. I don't I don't care about being on their media outlets. None of that makes me feel better about myself. Um, but I'm not offended. I'm, it's not like I hate them either. You know, it's like if they come up and they want to do business, I'm like, okay, let's talk. You know, as long as we're doing business on my terms, I'm okay with that, right? And 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 it's like and and what helped me do that was I found a, a situation that was mine. I found a better situation where I was free. I found a better situation where I was empowered, and so I'm not sitting around wondering. If some white guy is going to hook me up and give me an opportunity, I'll be damned. That's even that's offensive language right there. You should be offended with yourself whenever you use terminology like that. Like I'm waiting for someone to give me an opportunity. They just need to give us an opportunity. What the hell are you? Are you a child? You ain't no child. You're an adult. You create your own opportunity. You can create your own systems, your own institutions. You just have to train yourself on these things. You have to be around people who have that same ability and that same vision. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think that where we lose, where we're limited, and this is deliberate. This ain't no accident. They teach you how to not survive on your own so you will become dependent on them and will stay dependent on them. They convince you very early that you're not capable of educating your own kids, so you don't try to create alternatives to the public school system. They train you to believe that your, your best, the best you can ever do is impress them enough for them to give you a job because they don't want a, a 10 million black people trying to create their own businesses, their own institutions, because that's going to become competition. So think about it. If you want to really understand the psyche of a white supremacist, think about the psyche of an abusive husband who wants to control his wife. Does he really want his wife to be fully informed and educated? No. He wants her stupid and pregnant, right? Does he really want his wife to feel confident and empowered that she can go out and conquer the world and live without him? No. 
He wants her to feel insecure. He wants her to feel that 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 he's all she's got, right? He doesn't want her to believe that she can make it on her own because then at that point, he doesn't have to control her as much because she's going to be scared to walk out the damn door. So for black people, that's your problem. White supremacy has a grip on you because you're scared to walk out the damn door. That's the problem. So maybe that's maybe for us, it's a lost cause. Maybe in our generation, we're just so cooned out that we don't know how to break out of this, 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 this uh, brainwashing. Brainwashing is real. Brainwashing is powerful. But why not at least commit ourselves to making sure that our children are not in that situation? Maybe our children, even basic things like maybe our kids can grow up in a world where black people don't feel that the only political solution they have is to vote for the Democratic Party, no matter how disrespectful the Democrats are to their community. I mean, maybe they can at least feel like they have at least one tiny fucking option as opposed to us where we get we get we, we get our, our pastor gets bought out by some Democratic representative who come, and then comes in our church. Eats barbecue chicken with the pastor and feeds you a bunch of stuff about how the Republicans are racist and they're going to kill you if you don't vote for the Democrats. I mean, I, I, I mean, how often are we going to let this stupid cycle continue? Really? I mean, in, in fact, this was actually the topic, the, the original topic I jumped on here since we're speaking about politics. I become deeply offended when I'm when I'm looking at this election. And I, Donald Trump, complete asshole, complete idiot. I'm not a fan of Donald Trump at all. Um, I've always, I've respected his, some of his business acumen. I did read his book, the, the Art of the Deal, back when I was in college. Um, so there was something I did want to learn from him. But I remember even back then being a little concerned about his positions on race. Literally 25 years ago, I remember thinking this man might be a racist. Um, I wrote him a letter. I, I never mentioned this. I, I haven't mentioned this to anybody now that I think about it, not for a long time. But I literally wrote Donald Trump a letter back in, a long time ago. I'm not going to tell you how long ago it was because y'all going to think I'm an old man. But y'all probably already know, so I'll tell you. It was 1991. It was right after Boys in the Hood came out. And, and I was in Boston at this internship with GE Aircraft Engines. And, I, and Donald Trump had said something about how he wishes he was a young black male um, you know, in America, because young black men have all the opportunities. And I think I wrote him a letter to kind of tell him that that wasn't true. But at the same time, I said that he should take, you know, some young black men and mentor them so that they can learn, you know, what he knows, you know, that and again, that I was a different person. I was 20. So I didn't understand racism the way I understand it now. Now I would never want to ever send myself or my child to be mentored by Donald Trump. But back then, um, I do remember I literally and this is back in the day when you were writing a letter like it wasn't I didn't email him. You know, I didn't sort of type something up. I wrote a handwritten letter and mailed it to his office. Isn't that crazy? Um, so anyway, I, I just now remembered that. But long story short, you know, this election to me is a disgrace because you literally have this weird situation going on where the media is hyper obsessed, you know, legitimately for uh, over all these things, all these allegations against Donald Trump. Um, which, which are problematic, right? I mean, yeah, okay. If he's, if he's grabbing women's vaginas, I mean, yeah, you need to know that kind of stuff. But it's funny to me because I'm like, well, wait a minute. Why aren't you also talking about Hillary Clinton's dirt? I mean, her dirt is, her dirt bothers me a whole lot more than, than what I'm hearing about Trump. You know, I mean, Hillary, if you really look down the list of the things she's done when it comes to money, uh, the, the trail of dead bodies in, in her wake. The, if you look at what happened, you look at Benghazi, you look at the stuff with the email servers, you look at the stuff that with Wall Street and her connections to Wall Street, you know, her dirt can be just as damaging to the country as as uh, as Trump's dirt. You know, so to me, 
Um, you know, I don't really buy into this notion that somehow, you know, that all we should be thinking about is 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 that a that a woman can a few a couple women, and I'm not saying this it's it's, it's not important. It is important, but you know, you had one woman that said Donald Trump touched me. Um, he touched. I think he said she said he reached up her skirt, and it was like 25 years ago, and and and, and it was like, okay, then that's fine. That's not cool. Yeah, absolutely. If if he did that. And, and it's illegal, then yes, go talk to the cops. And and then, of course, the obvious question is, why didn't you talk to the cops back in 25 years ago? Why did you just happen to bring it up right before the election? This is not politically motivated, even though everything is coming right before the election. Okay, okay, whatever. But then it's like, you know, do we have any sort of standard of proof? You know, I mean, mean seriously, I mean, if you're talking about accusing someone of something very serious, the million-dollar question to me is, should there be any burden of proof on the person making the accusation when the accusation is that serious? Now, if I want to, if I want to accuse you of taking extra sugar with the cornflakes this morning, then I don't need no proof because that's not a serious allegation. It's like, who cares? Who cares who ate the Cheerios this morning? Right. But if I'm accusing you of sexual assault, <laughs> which will ruin your, um, you know, reputation, that could get you sent to prison for a very long time. Maybe I at least need a witness. Maybe a witness could be, you know, helpful. Maybe I need some sort of physical evidence. Do I got video? I mean, what do I have? Did you admit to what you did? You know, especially when you're talking about 20, 25 years ago. I mean, seriously. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not sitting there trying to say that these allegations are not serious, but I'm saying that the country it has gotten stupid. It's lost its damn mind. Let me let me read something to y'all real quick that that I read on CNN of all places. CNN is, is CNN's kind of disappointing me a little bit. I mean, I, I like CNN better than the other media outlets, and um, and I love my favorite show is Anderson Cooper or AC360. I I think Anderson's awesome. Um, I've been on Anderson's show probably 40, 50 times, and every time he's always very respectful, even though I don't even know if the dude ever even remembers me because he has so many guests. But every time he's like, hey, Dr. Watkins, how you been? You know, he talk, you know I, just, I, I love, I respect that guy so much. Um, but anyway, um, let me read something, but I have to be honest about this, the CNN quote. Okay, so it says, Zervos claims Trump kissed her twice on the lips during a lunch meeting in his New York City office. On a separate occasion in Beverly Hills, she alleges he kissed her aggressively and touched her breast. She later – now listen to this now. Pay attention. She later pursued a job within the Trump organization. So so she later pursued a job with the man who traumatized her by touching her breasts and kissing her and only God knows what. Oh, and also she went to see him twice. So apparently – the first time he kissed her on the lips, maybe she thought he wasn't serious, and, and this happened in New York. So she goes all the way across the country and meets him again in Beverly Hills and says that Trump touched her breast. So, again, if, if, again, this is my daughter, and a man kisses you aggressively and it traumatizes you, and you feel that he needs to be sent to prison, that he is a predator, all these other things. You can't then finish the conversation by saying, oh, yeah, and I went to see him again in Beverly Hills, and that's when he touched my breast. My first question, to be honest with you, whether it's my daughter or anybody else, is why did you go what, – what, what, why did you go see him again? Did you have to? Like, were there, was there no one else you could work for? You know, and, and, so that's my first question. But then she later pursued a job within the Trump organization. So 
You had this incident with this man in New York. You go see him again in Beverly Hills where, he, where now he really shows you he's a predator. He touches your breast. But then you go and try to get a job with his organization. And she says that Trump told her to stop calling him. Now, I'm not talking I'm not talking to the to the extreme feminists in the room. I, I already know the, the, the whole thing. I, I figured out the, the hustle with the extreme feminists. And I'm not talking about all feminists. I'm not talking about those who believe in equal rights and fair treatment, fair pay for women, all those things. I'm cool with all of that. You know, right to choose. I, I don't I don't get I won't give anybody any problem with any of that stuff because some of that's not my fight. And I'm not going to even though I have daughters. So I care deeply about women's issues because of that. But but I'm but 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 I know the hustle when you talk about the extreme feminists, the extreme feminist mentality, it appears or the approach, the ideology, the strategy is that men, bad women, good. You know, we're right no matter what. We want no accountability for anything. We, sh we can accuse you of eating a Martian and murdering little babies and having sex with a naked sheep. And you better not question my accusation because if you do, you are attacking the victim, right? I can accuse you of anything, and it could have happened 30 years ago. You have no right to ask me why I waited so long. You have no right to ask me for proof. You have no right to ask me anything about myself, anything about the situation, because if you do, somehow you're attacking me and I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to scream like a white woman. And everyone knows that a white woman in distress is, uh, is, is literally the calling card or, or the bat signal for all humanity to really run to her, to, to provide her with safety. That's why white women are the least likely to be incarcerated of any group of people in America because a white woman in many cases can present almost any excuse on earth for doing any horrible thing and someone will forgive her because, I mean, my gosh, she's white, right? A black male, don't matter. You get accused of some shit, no evidence whatsoever. Oh, give, give that nigga the electric chair, right? But and again, this is a tradition. This is something that has been going on for three, 300 years in this country, 400 years. So this is all part of a tradition, right? Okay. So, so moving on. All right. So, 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 so my, my thing is this, look, you know, when I'm reading this quote, and I'm going to read through, through this again real quick so you can know this, this CNN quote. Zervos claims Trump kissed her twice on the lips during a lunch meeting in his New York City office. On a separate occasion in Beverly Hills, where she met him again, uh, that's in parentheses for me, uh, she alleges he kissed her aggressively and touched her breast. She later pursued a job within the Trump organization and says Trump asked her to stop calling him. So, again, just as feasible. I mean, this is just as feasible that Maybe they had something popping where there was an understanding. I mean, why why is it not popping? I mean, how often does that happen, right? I mean, you, you can't pretend like it doesn't happen. You can't pretend like people sleep their way to the top, men and women. I'm not. This ain't a woman thing. There's men. I know men who slept their way to the top. I know men who are like, yeah, if I get the boss in bed, then she's going to basically let me do whatever I want, right? So there are good-looking people who can sleep their way to the top. So to me, I'm like, well, it, 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 I mean, why isn't it just as feasible? Like, or at the very least, the burden of proof on, is on her because she's making the accusation. The burden of proof is on her to prove that it wasn't sort of an arrangement. Like, okay, look, I'm going to let you grab my, my breast. I'm going to let you kiss me, whatever. But, but I better get that job because I'm coming back. I'm going to come back and I'm as, quote, I'm going to later pursue this job. And when you tell me that to stop calling you, then that's a problem. Oh, now I'm going to hit the rewind button and go back to the times where we had our intimate moments and suddenly you're going to be portrayed as as a um, as as a what's the word? Um, ah, I can't remember. a predator. That's it. Predator. 
That's the word. Predator, it just sounds like it's such a scary word, right? Now, again, I'm not saying Trump isn't a predator. He could be. I mean, I, I, and I don't like this guy at all. I, I even hate, I don't even want it to even sound like I'm defending Donald Trump. I'm not defending Donald Trump. I'm trying to defend the truth. I'm trying to defend common sense, right? Um, because here's the funny thing, and this is why I warn young brothers all the time, uh, especially when they go to college, tell your sons this, please. We actually have a class for college students. If your kids are interested, uh, you can go to thecollegestudentguide.com. Somebody type that in, thecollegestudentguide.com. It's only $19 a month. First month is free. All it is is mentorship for college students. I literally have tons of video content where I'm mentoring your child through college. They need to hear from a professor who cares about them. So don't send your child to college without them getting good mentorship so they know how the game is played. When it comes to young brothers, I tell them, be very careful about who you sleep with. Make sure you get to know a woman before you lay down with her because this is not a game to be played with. If y'all go in that room and y'all both have an intimate moment and nature takes its course and you kiss her and you don't officially ask for consent, then you can be labeled as a predator even though at that moment it may not have felt like a predatory situation. All the old school rules, all the old school rules about, you know, masculinity and, and, and feminine energy and basically how you just, you know, the, you know how the old school romantic rules kind of went where you're just sitting there and, and nobody says a word and you look, I'm looking in your eyes, you're looking in mine and, and the music's playing and I'm holding your hand and then suddenly I move up and I just mm, mm, give you a kiss. I'm sorry, that can't work anymore. Because if I do that, and let's say I kiss you, I mean, I don't know about y'all, how many of y'all ever laid a kiss, that first kiss on a girl and didn't really know if she was ready, right? How many of y'all ever done that? Anybody, raise your hand. If you haven't, I don't know, you can't raise, I can't see you. But but, but seriously, how many of you have ever tried to kiss a girl and without knowing completely that she was okay with you kissing her? I know I've had that experience way too many times. Most of the time, I've been like, no, I'm not going to do this. Because if I do this, I mean, I don't want it, I don't want it to be misinterpreted, right? Because there's a very thin line between a man who made the right move versus a man who suddenly become a creep, right? Right? So so as a man, that's a very scary scenario. But here, that's so that's the problem. So you're sitting there and you're having this romantic moment and you're like, you know what? She's ready. I'm going to lay the kiss on her. And she ain't ready. If she's if something goes wrong later on and, it, and the story gets interpreted a certain way, you can be seen as a predator. And I'm not playing. I mean, tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me where I'm telling you the goddess of God truth. In fact, I'm thinking about this. I remember one time and I'm telling too much of my business, but I, but it was it really bothers me. So I got to get this off my chest. One time there was a girl that I liked and we spent so much time together, hours and hours and hours. And I really thought I was like, man, this girl likes me. She likes me. And she's just waiting for me to make a move because, you know, how it is like like ladies, ladies that are old school, like y'all might wait for the man to make the move. If he don't make the move. Then nothing happens. Right. So I was like, she's waiting for me to make the move. And I tried to kiss her. Right. Oh, my God. It totally bombed on me. It totally bombed. It didn't work. She wasn't ready. She was so shocked and taken aback. And I was like, oh, my God, boys, you totally misinterpreted her signals. So later on, she went and somebody told me they were like, yeah, this girl, um, uh, this girl said she told her friend that 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 y'all were together and you tried to kiss her and it made her feel really uncomfortable. And, and it made it, it sounded like I did something bad. And I was like, man, I'm not doing that no more. Oh, my God. You know, like, that's how you feel. Right. And, and so to me, I think that it's like it's like it, it creates really fuzzy rules for men. Men don't know what the hell to do. So technically, you know, what I have to tell guys is I, I don't know what to tell. Them. I'm not going to tell them to go and, and, and do these things that might have you labeled in, a, in, in an incorrect way. So I just tell them, well, I mean, according to the law and according to the political realities of the society in which we live, 
Before you kiss her, you should probably say, is it okay if I kiss you? And and what's so funny is the guy came back to me. He told me, he said, um, he said, you know, I did that. And I asked the girl, I said, hey, is it okay if I kiss you? And she got mad at me. He said she got mad because she was like, well, that just turns me off that you got to ask me. If you want to kiss me, you should just kiss me. You know, and so, so again, the, the, the ladies who are open-minded, I hope you'll understand what I'm trying to say here. Those who don't get it, those who buy into all that logic, that, that ridiculous, illogical logic that's out here in our political re, uh, environment, I, I don't know what to say because I already know, like, before the conversation begins, I'm already going to be labeled a certain way because I don't agree with you. But I, I say that this is the time where we all have to get together and say, fuck that. Excuse my French. This, these are the moments where people have to be strong enough to pursue common sense in a world where common sense has been thrown out the window. Same thing was true during McCarthyism. McCarthyism, in case you don't know, was an era in American history where they wanted to believe everybody was a communist. If your neighbor said something that you didn't like, they were a communist. If they disagreed with the war, they were a communist. If they believed in the civil rights movement, they were a communist. Communist, communist, communist. Everybody was a communist. Well, there were a few brave people who said, this is crazy. Everybody can't be a communist. You got Martin Luther King and James Baldwin and everybody, everybody who disagrees with the government is being labeled a communist this is crazy so so those are the people that history remembers so my argument is as hard as hard as it is um i think that we should have people that just say you know what some of this shit ain't making no damn sense you know i mean of course you want to defend the rights of women to be safe and protected i mean i'm a father for god's sake i have i have girls like why wouldn't i want them to be safe but, but at the same time i teach my girls common sense you know, and I think that that I think that black a lot of black people kind of get it. Um, I think that there are some black people, though, who just unfortunately have been sort of indoctrinated into ways of thinking that are sort of outside the community. Um, but, you know, I, I just say at the end of the day, we got to fight for what is right. You know, and, and sometimes doing, saying what you think is right is going to be unpopular. Some people aren't going to like you. I already know people. There are going to be some people probably. Pro One time I got into a fight. Y'all should go read this article I put um, on, on brothersonsports.com where I was I was basically warning black men about sleeping around. And I said, you have to be careful about sleeping around because, you know, there are people out here that, that if they get mad at you, they may falsely accuse you of rape. It doesn't happen often, but the fact that it can happen 1% of the time or whatever is enough of a risk to you because that can mean life in prison for you. And I got into such a big fight with, with certain feminists because uh, Mark Lamont Hill put it up on his wall and said something about rape culture. So what I, what I noticed and observed was the, the sort of mob mentality that, that people had where they were literally all quoting each other and, and, re, and literally repeating incorrect quotes. Like they, I think they had one quote where they said that the odds of, um, what was it? I think they said uh, the odds of a man being falsely accused of rape are the same as the odds of, of being struck by lightning. And they all kept repeating the same quote, like parakeets. And I said, wow, this is interesting. This is like a lynch mob kind of mentality. This made me feel like if I was a black man, say 200 years ago, they'd be coming to my house trying to like pull me out to like murder me in the middle of the night. Uh, and, and so anyway, I was like, where is this stupid quote coming from? I, this can't be true. Am I that crazy? So I did the research, which is something that most of them did not do. I did the research and I looked up the quote and I said, where did this quote come from? And I traced it back where a, a scholar had written an article basically debunking that quote and saying that a lot of people are repeating this quote, but it's incorrect. And here's why. Here's what the real data says. Here's what scholars have actually concluded. But the reason that everybody was repeating the quote was because it was an incorrect quote that was recited on a popular website. So everybody kind of grabbed it and ran. That's what you're dealing with now politically in America is you're dealing with a lot of bandwagons, a lot of lynch mobs, a lot of bullying, a lot. Of, a lot of, and it's, it's really interesting that 
liberals are the ones that they claim to believe in freedom of speech, but really they're the ones doing most of the bullying right now. They bully the, the LGBT, bullies the hell out of Christians. And if you don't agree with everything we say, and you don't applaud every time I say I'm gay, then you must be homophobic. No, maybe I'm just different. Maybe I just read a Bible that tells me certain things and I believe those things and I ain't bothering you, ain't bothering me, leave me the fuck alone, right? Maybe that's what Christians are saying, but no, it's, it's interpreted as if you are a black Christian, especially, you're seen as a homophobic ne Neanderthal idiot or that you're so ignorant you must be brought into the light by the liberals that's why i don't like liberals very much because liberals unfortunately are way too paternalistic they are no different from those missionaries those christian missionaries who used to go to africa and tell the people in africa everything that you believe in everything about who you are is is primitive and ignorant or whatever and you need food so i will give you food if you read the bible and you you start worshiping the white jesus that's exactly what they did to them back then that's what they do to us now how are they able to do this? It comes from power disparity through due to uh, the lack of availability of resources. So for black people, many of us get assimilated because we don't know how to pay our own bills. So the people that we're begging to pay our bills, meaning white folks, pretty much assimilate us as a condition for us, us having the ability to access resources. The um, the analogy I gave last night, and I'll share this with y'all uh, one time for those who weren't up at two o'clock in the morning when I was, when I was, I guess on some sort of tear. I don't know. I had a lot on my mind because I just got back from um, Tulsa. Um, before I give the analogy, let me, I, I should give you a couple of, write down a couple of websites um, for this um, information in case you want to take a class. We actually have a new class for beginners who want to get started on the wealth building journey. It's at blackmoney101.com. If you go to blackmoney101.com, you can actually sign up and the first month is free and it gives you the basics of wealth building money. The power It's an introduction to the power of money. That's what the class is, is called. Um, also, if you uh, want to check out my new book, I have a new book out called The New Black Power. You can check it out at thenewblackpower.com. That's thenewblackpower.com. All right. So with that being said, let me let me explain the, the analogy. I was explaining it like this. I said, imagine if and I explained it badly last night, so I'm gonna try it again today, so maybe it'll make sense because I want to use this in a speech, so I want to make sure I, I get it right. So I was thinking about this and I said, okay, so when you think about one of the one of the confusing things about white supremacy and racism is that you know we tend to break racism down into something about attitudes, right? How people feel about us, right? Like oh, so and so's racist because look at what they just said about me, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is that that's incorrect because structural racism is a social uh, a socioeconomic, socioeconomic political disease that that remains um, inside the fabric of an institution even after the racists have left the building. You see, an institution is a function of those who created that institution. Like, for example, if I if I if I take this pen and I draw a picture on this piece of paper, this image is even after I'm gone, it's still a reflection of me. Do you understand? So it's a reflection of me, my biases, my worldview, who I am as a person. So many of these institutions were built by people who were undeniable racist, people who literally believed in, in black enslavement, black extermination, black marginalization, the torture of black people, etc., uh, and also the dehumanization of black people. So these institutions were built on this very racist, undeniably racist foundation. But many of these extreme racists are dead, right? Um, so the but the institution lives. 
So your legacy lives. There's what the economics they call a ripple effect. So in your family, the same thing is true when you talk about um, what you teach your kids. You know, if you teach your kids good things or bad things, there's a ripple effect where they're going to teach that to their kids and their kids are teaching to their kids. Or if you abuse your kids, you know, when you have people that molest their children, you know, God forbid, these horrible things that happen in families, what happens? The abuse becomes, the trauma becomes intergenerational. There's a ripple effect. So long after the abuse, the original abuser is gone, the trauma remains. Many of y'all still have trauma in your families that started back in slavery, right? So with these institutions that, that exist, um, after being built on an undeniably racist foundation, these institutions still have a biased uh, infrastructure, a, a biased way of, of operating, a biased allocation of resources that is a reflection of the racism of those who created these institutions. Like when I was at Syracuse University, it wasn't a coincidence that all the position, most of the positions of power were held by white males, and then a few of them were held by white females, and that white people kind of ran everything. Black people were marginalized. They would get sho shove them over to like maybe the Africana Studies Department. And they didn't have any real power in the institution except a couple of token token Negroes. That that's kind of the the, the sort of template. You go to University of Kentucky, uh, a lot of places, the same thing is true, right? So uh, so here's the thing. Um, you know, you can still have racism in the building, even if there's not a racist around. So white people, unfortunately, they take it personal. When we talk about systematic racism, they think we're talking about them. They think we're saying you're a racist and they'll say, no, I'm not a racist. I have black friends. I want to help black people. I like black people. Right. And they might really mean that. And what they don't understand is that it has nothing to really to do with you. It has to do with all the, 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 the operating procedures and the norms and the customs and the institutional structure that you pledge allegiance to that was built on a racist foundation by racist people. So you're not a direct supporter of, of, of racism, of, of racist division. But you are an indirect supporter of this because everything you've been taught to believe in, it was built on an undeniably racist foundation. It's like when um, Princeton University had a big fight over the Woodrow Wilson School of, uh, of Public Policy. Well, I think it's public policy. And, and, and because the black students on the campus rightfully saw were like, man, fuck Woodrow Wilson. This dude hated black people. I'm not going to this 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 school and, and, and honoring this guy who did these horrible things to the people I love. And the white people were like, but you can't do that. It's the Woodrow Wilson school. Everybody loves Woodrow Wilson. This school's been around for 100 years. We love this school, right? And, and so it becomes this very honest, but yet troubling battle where we're all sort of victims of white supremacy. Everybody's affected by it. Even the white people are victims of it because now you're sort of being held to pay the price for what other people did. So you think that's unfair because you're like, well, why should I pay the price for what other people did when the fact is that you're benefiting from what they did? You'll take the benefits, but you don't want to pay the cost, right? But yet you still want black people to be your friend. You still want us to forgive you. You still want us to be cool with the fact that you've taken all the benefits, but you don't want to pay any of the costs for what has been been done in this country. Um, and so the analogy, one of the analogies that, that I was thinking about was I was, I was like, you know, it's almost like imagine if you have two generations, right? The first generation, one man goes to another man. He, he beats him up and murders him and takes all his food. Right. And so he, he puts all his food in the refrigerator and then they both had children. They, the children end up living in the same house. 
where this this horrible tragedy happened. But let's say they have no idea what happened. Like, nobody tells them about how one kid ended up with all the food and the other one didn't. So the, so let's say that one kid, let's say neither one of them is racist or biased in any way. They really like each other, respect each other. But you've got the white kid who, let's say he's white and he's really religious. Let's let's add, let's add that double variable in. So he's white and super religious, and he he has all the food. The other kid is black. Let's say he's not religious, right? So let's say the white kid has. Let's say that the white kid's not biased at all, but he has a belief. Like his belief is, look, if you um, are a good person, then you pray before you eat. If you don't pray before you eat, you know, um, the, the gospel says that you're going to go to hell and I can't accept that kind of behavior. So I'm not biased based on race, but I do believe that if you don't pray before you eat, then you don't deserve any food. Right. So the black kid, he ain't got no food, but because the white kid has all the food. Right. So he what does he have to do to eat? Well, he's got to go ask the white kid. Hey, man, can I have some of your food? And the white kid's going to be like, sure. But all you got to do is pray. And the black kid might be like, well, I don't want to pray. And he might be like, well, you know, if you don't want to pray, Billy, I mean, we'd like to give you food, but we can't feed you um, unless you pray. Like, you know, in this house, this is a house of prayer, you know, and, 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 and so he might be like, well, I don't want to pray. Well, he might be like, well, then the kid, the other kid might be like, well, OK, well, if you don't want to pray, um, then you don't get to eat and you might have to leave the house because I own the house and I own the food. Right. So you, do you understand how the disproportionate allocation of resources plays a role in terms of of of, of, of what we might call um, what's the word? Christopher Emden used this word imperialism. Right. Cultural imperialism where he the, the kid who has all the resources can pretty much force the other kid into submission and assimilation by virtue of the fact that he received an unfair and unbalanced distribution from the beginning. And so you can't understand the dynamic of that household in, in generation two without knowing the history of that household in generation one. In order for equity to be achieved in generation two, you must go back and address what was done in generation one. But if 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 one of the kids, let's say that the other kid says, well, you know, the, the poor black kid, the black kid says, well, you know, I um I read, you know, I found out the neighbors told me that your dad actually murdered my dad and took all the food and 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 took and and took the the you know took ownership of the house so really technically this is half my house well what's the white kid gonna say he's probably gonna say something like well you know i i agree my you know what billy my dad was a horrible person he i mean what he did you know i love my dad i mean i think he's i i, I have to honor him because he's my father but what he did was wrong and, and that'll never happen again. As long as, as I'm running the house, I will never, ever mistreat you because of the color of your skin. And so maybe the black kid says like, well, you know, since this is technically half mine, maybe you need to give up some of that food. Maybe you need to give up that, you know, like half the house. Well, the white kid's going to be like, well, I mean, yeah, I agree with you that, that what my dad did was wrong. But I mean, why should I be held accountable for what somebody else did? Right. Do you understand where this conversation is going? So he might then say, how about we just let the past be the past? How about we just, you know, forget everything? How about we just pray together and, and just move forward in peace? Well, the black kid's going to be like, fuck you. I'm not moving forward in peace. You got my shit. You know, and, and so so then maybe, the you know, and then he could, the, the white kid can say something stupid, like something that Fox News might say, like, 
Well, you know, in this household, Billy, I mean, you're asking me to allocate resources based on race. And we have a race neutral household. We have a colorblind household. So it's not fair for me to give you extra benefits just because of the color of your skin, because we both agreed that that's wrong. But the problem is that the original misallocation occurred based on race. So the reallocation must occur based on race. It's like mathematics. If, if something happens on one side of the equation, then you have to balance it with the other side of the equation. You can't, you can't have the imbalance and say 7 plus 8 plus 9 equals negative 12. That don't work. The, the right side must balance with the left side for it to actually make sense. So basically... The reason you get mad, in my opinion, the reason white people white people make you upset is not because you hate them, but because you're mad about the fact that they're trying to feed you illogical bullshit. They're telling you things that just that, that are just dumb. So I, I mentioned these analogies because when you go to work and you meet that stupid white person who wants you to just stop being mad about being black and stop being mad about what what has happened to your people, you just sort of help them understand that you can't address the present and the future without addressing the past. That's not logical. It doesn't make any sense. You're, it's basically um, the ultimate mind mind fuck. I want to say mind fuck, but I'm not going to say mind fuck. I'm, so I'll say something else. Um, um, and, and another thing. Oh, here's another thing too. That's the reason why they don't teach you history. That's why they don't teach white people history. They don't teach black people history. Right? Think about it again. Use that household as an analogy. Does it really benefit the people, the, the kid who's in power? Does it really benefit him when the other kid knows the history of how everything came to be? No. If he's really smart about it, he's going to feed him a fantasy. He's going to feed him an illusion. Maybe he'll even give him a little food, like give him an apple or something and say, look, I, you know, I'm giving you this apple because I'm a good person. And, and, and this is why, this is why this household has gotten so much better because now you have an apple. Now I got 20 oranges and 14 bananas and, and, and 45 watermelons in the refrigerator, but I gave you an apple and you need to be grateful for that apple, right? When the truth is that your daddy, when he died, he had half of that damn fruit. Half of that fruit was supposed to be yours. So black people, half of this country or a big percentage, 13, sorry, 13 percent of this country should be yours. You know, instead of this, you know, the few acres of land that we own or that one half of one percent of land that we own, we're supposed to own 13 percent of that land. Uh, instead of us having, say, a, a trillion in spending power, we're supposed to have maybe 10, 10, 8, 9, 10 trillion dollars in spending power. So so you got to compare what what's there versus what's supposed to be there and, and then make sure you force people to tell the truth um i gotta stop talking because i've been talking so long and uh i just had a lot on my mind so i wanted to share it then write down a couple of these uh urls and i hope you'll go uh, consider checking out um some of the stuff that we we have for you if you're interested in learning uh the black wolf boot camp starts out very very soon uh, you can go to theblackwealthbootcamp.com. That's the class I teach for five weeks. Uh, everybody loves it. It's a great class. Also, um, if you have a business idea, everybody should have a business idea. Every black person in America, if, if I could be king for a day, I would make a rule that says every black child needs to learn how to start a business before the age of 12. Every black person at some point needs to be thinking about having a business. Because to me, if every black person can grow up wanting to make an album or make a movie or play a sport, then why can't we also have a business dream? Why can't that be part of our culture too? So if you have a business idea and you want to uh, flesh it out, uh, a lot of people say business plans have to be long and drawn out, which sometimes they do, but most of the time simplicity works best. So I actually created what I call the Dr. Boyce Watkins 10-minute business plan. It is a 10-minute business. It takes 10 minutes to fill out. 
and it'll help you kind of streamline and nail down what you want to do with your business. So if you're interested in that, you can actually look up, uh, let me see what's the URL. I think it's the Dr. Boyce business plan.com, the Dr. Boyce business plan.com. So if you go to the Dr. Boyce business plan.com, which is totally free, you can fill it out and figure out what you want to do in terms of your business. Um, and also in case you don't know, we actually do have an app on your iPhone or your Android. You can look up my name, Boyce Watkins and the Boyce Watkins app is there. That gives you access to video content and any, you know, stuff that we release. So, uh, you can check out the Boyce Watkins app. So, uh, that's, that's some stuff for you today. I hope that that's helpful to you. Um, thank you for coming to school church with me because that's what we do. That's what this, that's what my podcast, I guess, have become is like school church. And I, and I love it. It makes me feel probably as good as it makes you feel. And I'm just glad that y'all came to listen. And I love every one of you and I appreciate you. And, uh, Dafina is spelled, uh, she wrote it out the URL, but actually it's not Dr. Boyce. It's not the whole word doctor. It's DR Boyce. So the Dr. Boyce business plan.com. All right. Well, I'm out of here and I hope you guys have a wonderful day and I will talk to you all soon. Take care. Peace.